Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. About a week before Thanksgiving in November of uh, 1965, uh, I was going to work one Friday morning, and my wife said to me, uh, when you get off work tonight, would you stop and pick up a few things for me? That was rather dangerous. It was payday Friday. But uh, I got off at 5 o'clock. I got my check cashed. I went to buy her a few things. And when I was coming home at 2.30 in the morning, uh, I was stopped unceremoniously by uh, an officer of the law. And... Uh, he came up the side of the car and um, without any, you know, any introduction or anything, he opened the door and I fell out on the road and um, he didn't even administer the sobriety test. He just put me in the squad car and arrested me for drunk driving. And I, uh, I knew it was unconstitutional. He hadn't performed any tests or anything, but uh, I'm kind of a get along, go along kind of guy. But... Um, Early the next morning, they gave me my phone call, and I called my oldest sister. I had four sisters, and uh, I was very fair with all of them. I usually try not to call the same one every time I got in trouble. I'd kind of divide it up, and they were pretty generous about that. But I called my oldest sister, and I said, uh, I had a little problem last night. I'm in jail, and I wonder if you would come down and get me out. Well, she already knew I was there. This is a small community, and she said, I'll come down and get you on one condition. Now, if anybody tells you that, they'll get you out of jail on one condition. They've never been in jail before. Because whatever the condition is, it doesn't make any difference. You know, of course you're going to say yes. And uh, I said, well, I yes, I, I'd be happy to do that. So she came down, bailed me out, took me over to her house and says, I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to dial the phone. I want to give it to you, and I want you to talk to this gentleman that's on the phone. Now, I had talked to a lot of people, some of them on the phone, some of them in a cell. I just talked to a lot of people over the years. And they were used, I knew what we were going to talk about. I knew what the topic would be. But I talked to psychiatrists and psychologists and just about everybody in the world. But the guy answered the phone. And he said, this is Master Sergeant McIntyre. I wasn't prepared for that. And uh, it come to be that he was a Master Sergeant at Luke Air Force Base. And... Um, we visited for a little bit, but anyway, he said, I'm working right now. I wonder if I could come over and see you at 6 o'clock tonight. Well, um, I wasn't quite so nervous. I had just gotten out of the Navy a year earlier. Um, okay, I was asked to leave. But anyway, <laughs> let's just leave it at that. I, they went their way. I went my way. So I, I said, uh, sure, Sarge, uh, yeah, that would be all right. And he said, oh, by the way, would you do one more favor? Would you not drink until I get there? And understanding the guy was in the Air Force, I knew he didn't want me to get a head start. So I said, you know, Sarge, I'll be glad to do that. And, uh, you know, in those days, I could go all day without a drink. You know, I was 25 years old. It was pretty easy. And sure enough, at 6 o'clock, my wife and three kids had slipped out the door a little bit before they got there, and that was a little ominous. I wasn't sure what that was about. Maybe these guys are going to beat the hell out of me. I don't know. 
Anyway, he knocked at the door, and uh, he was there, and, and there was another guy with him who turned out to be Sam. Sam was a lineman with a utility company, and they're standing there grinning from ear to ear. And there's nothing more disconcerting than to have two alcoholics show up at your door for a 12-step call, and they're standing there grinning like Cheshire cats, like, oh, man, we waited all day for this, you know. just They're just excited, you know, and it's, you know, it kind of overpowers you a little bit, but they come in. I had made some coffee, was set at the table, and John says, now tell me this little, tell the, Sam the little story about last night. And, uh, okay, so I told the Sam little story, and they laughed. They, they just thought that was great, and I got to feeling better about this thing. And then they told me a few things about them and some of their drinking stories, and then I got real comfortable. These, these are drunks just like me. I said, if you guys want to, I, I can run right down, uh, there's a Circle K just a block from here. I'll go down and get a few six-packs of beer. And they said, uh, well, we don't drink. I said, what are you talking about? I was just listening to some of your stories. And they said, oh, well, we used to drink. Uh, we haven't drank in two years. And I said, you haven't drank in two years. Why? And they said, well, we're in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, oh, okay. I, I, I made no connection. I, I really didn't know what it was. I, I think I'd heard a, j- a joke about AA one time. I, someone had told this joke about a, a drunk that stumbled down the street and he ran into this cop and he said, do you know where Alcoholics Anonymous is? And he says, yes, it's one more block on your right. Are you going there to sign up? He says, no, I'm going to resign. I don't know why I thought that was funny <laughs> because I didn't know what AA was, but it just, it was supposed to be funny. If it's an inside joke, I want you to think I know it, you know, so. So, uh, but I figured uh, that it was probably like the Lions Club. They they met once a month, had a potluck, or something like that. And I could do that. So I said, sure, I'd go to the meeting. He said, okay, let's go. Oh my God, all nights, you know, this is the night. <laughs> I said, okay. So I got in the car and I went with them that night. And I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I hadn't had a drink in uh, probably 12 or 14 hours. So um, even though I was a little bit sick. I was pretty clear-headed, and I, I heard what the speaker was saying. And the guy there that night was 10 years sober. And um, he had spent the last 10 years of his drinking on Skid Row. His name was Benny. And, uh, you know, Benny started talking about his drinking. And as Benny talked, I began identifying. First he said he started drinking when he was young. Well, I started drinking when I was 15. And, uh, you know, uh, and Benny had told me right from, right from the very beginning, though, he had no control over his alcohol. And, uh, you know, he was, he was a drunk almost from the very first drink. Well, that wasn't my story. Now, that was one of the few differences. I mean, I, I took my first drink and got drunk at 15, but I was actually a social drinker for the next, like, two weeks, you know. So, um, then I started having problems. And, uh, you know, I was I was a reasonably good student uh, for that part of the country. I was a reasonably good athlete, at least in baseball. And, um, I, you know, maybe a little above average, but um, um, was a pretty good student and uh, had the respect of my teachers and coaches. And, uh, uh, you know, in a very short time, uh, in about a year, all of that changed. I suddenly become uh, a delinquent, a juvenile delinquent. I become, uh, you know, this is a town, this is a population's about 300 people. You know, I lived out on a farm. We'd moved into town. So, you know, I was kind of trying to get used to being a city guy. And um, people's sons weren't allowed to ride in a car with me. And uh, God forbid that I'd ask your daughter for a date. I mean, you know, and the nice thing I found out 
if, uh, if everybody in town hates you and you're a juvenile delinquent, man, you get dates right and left. You know, I just, <laughs> I don't care what you look like. All you know is, you know, you're the bad guy, you know, and I, I know that for women in here, that's not attractive, but back then it was like, well, that must not be true. Every one of you guys in here have been married, so that tells me right there that they still like bad guys, you know. So. But anyway, um, it just, uh, it was just getting to be, um, really too much, and, uh, the farmers that used to hire me to work, uh, they no longer wanted me around. And it wasn't because I wouldn't work hard, it's because they said I was gonna take my money, and I was gonna buy the devil's brew, and, um, do things that were unspeakable. And since it was pretty much a Southern Baptist community, that meant that I was probably going to go to hell and burn forever and ever. I may still, but at least right now I'm on parole. And um, so to satisfy everybody, certainly including myself, I wanted to get out of town, except I had nowhere to go. Uh, I joined the Navy. I joined the Navy at 17, and I found a home right away. Even in boot camp, I thought, this is where I want to be the rest of my life. I really... That's where I wanted to be. I, I absolutely loved the Navy from the moment I got there. And uh, whatever they were doing to those other guys that made them hate it, I don't know. And uh, I told the guy, I said, I think I really like this Navy. He said, you like it now? I said, yeah. He said, are you kidding me, kid? This is boot camp. It's going to be a lot better when you get out. I said, I don't know if I can handle that. But I did. And um, so I was in the Navy for seven years. And uh, it was great. It really was. Uh, at the end, of course, um, I really started having some serious problems. I, uh, I'd been overseas for most of that, and, and there, there's a little bit different operating method for military when they're on foreign soil. You just do a lot of things that you don't get away with here, you know. So, uh, but I brought those uh, bad habits back with me to the states. They like you to show up on time. They like you to show up on some kind of a uniform that looks like a Navy uniform. They like you to salute. They like you to say yes sir, no sir, not hi Jerry. Where are you going, Bill? You know, I was enlisted, and they thought that I wasn't, I was uh, not treating officers the way I should. And when I found out you couldn't even date a female officer in the States, I already knew my career was going downhill. But um, I was married, and I had married my high school sweetheart, uh, strangely enough, and uh, I'd had, I had two kids, and um, when all these problems started, and I had been busted. But... Uh, I, uh, in a drunken rage one night, I, I cut my wrist and I wound up in a psychiatric hospital for three months, a Navy hospital. But old Benny, he, you know, he kept on talking about his drinking and he, and he talked about losing jobs and I, and I already knew about that as a civilian and a year out I'd lost every job I had from drinking. And, uh, he was just going on about going downhill. Well, mine was a little downhill when I first got out because all I took was manual labor jobs. I didn't realize that I could use my electronics training to some benefit. But at the time he was talking that night, I was an electronic engineering tech working at Goodyear Aerospace and research development, dressing every day pretty much like this, making good money. And so that's one more time we had a disconnect because I was obviously, uh, you know, but I also wasn't being very honest because having the job, which was a relatively good job, uh, the car that I got stopped in that night belonged to my dad because he had repossessed the, the car that I actually had. Um, my wife and we had three kids by this time. We're living in a three-room house in a low-rent district because that's all we could afford, again, because of my drinking. You know, so 
if you saw me at work and knew what my occupation was and knew that I was married and had three kids, I, I had a pretty good front sight. But in reality, um, I mean, it was uh, it was the kind of alcoholic home that we are all familiar with. But I, I wasn't ready to be quite that honest. And as I listened to him and he went on and talked about up until he got sober and then spending that time on Skid Row, that's where we had a complete disconnect. For one thing is that if if I ever even saw that I was going to head that way, believe me, I would never, ever in my life ever let anything like that happen. I mean, that's ridiculous. How could a person even possibly spend one day down there, let alone ten years? It was just inconceivable to me. But he made enough good points that night that, that uh, and, uh, you know, I was able to put the facts together that I was willing to admit I was an alcoholic. And I admitted it that night, and uh, the problem was I kept admitting it, but it took me 13 years to accept it. And I learned a very difficult thing about admitting you're an alcoholic and accepting it, because until I accepted the fact I was an alcoholic, I was unwilling to do anything about it. And I had 13 rather tough years to go. Not, in, not at that time. Actually, even though I left that job that I was at that night, I, in fact, I, I, I was sober from that first meeting until the first payday after January. So I got uh, through Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's without taking a drink. And for people that knew me at that time, primarily my family, my wife, uh, that was incredible. They had never seen me go that long, and I, I don't know that I had. But uh, that first payday, uh, I did get drunk and set off on this thing of uh, drinking for four or five or six months, coming in for one, two or three weeks. I could never get 30 days, just couldn't get 30 days. Drank for five, six, seven months, sometimes a year, then come back. You know, it was just, and that's the way it was, and that's the way it continued. Um, sometimes I came to get out of trouble. You know, I'd be having a problem with my lovely wife, or I'd be having trouble at work. I would be having trouble, you know, with the courts. Uh, then they started, uh, you know, it became a suggested program, and judges started suggesting you go to them. And, um, you know, I, I'd made three psychiatric hospitals while I was in the Navy. And I had four more to go to in civilian life. And a lot of jails. And I'm not sure it's really important about how many jails you go to. I kind of wish I would remember. They might come out with a benefit program on these days in AA. And if you don't know how many times you've been in jail, you might lose some of your benefits. So I don't know. I may have to figure out some way to count them up someday. But, you know, uh, I, I did kind of work myself up. I went to work for a computer company and uh, as, a, as a field engineer um, in 1966. And in 1967, I was working for them. We were contracted to NASA at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. And for those of you who can remember, 67... That was quite a time to be with NASA. We were getting ready to go to the moon, fulfill the mission that President Kennedy had given us back in 1960 to place a man on the moon before the end of the decade, and we were on target. And, uh, you know, to be in that environment, in that atmosphere, it was really heady stuff for a 27-year-old kid. It was exciting times. Two years later, 1969, I was living in MacArthur Park making that little trip down on the nickel twice a week to give plasma, getting what I needed occasionally to change clothes at the Sally, sleeping in the all-night theater so I wouldn't be caught out on the street at night, 
managed to find a nice little uh, cardboard condo uh, inside MacArthur Park behind the Oleanders, and that worked out real well. That, it was a big double-wide Amanda where they had the side-by-side freezers and they had the little one-by-ones in it so it was reinforced. It was really nice. You could have overnight guests. So, um, But here was the guy that could not conceive of someone allowing themselves to wind up on Skid Row. And I don't know how to explain this is that I just didn't walk out of the meeting that night, and the next day I was on schedule. Mine was a, a study progression, and it was rather rapid, but it didn't happen overnight. And, and you know, it was just one day I, I was fired from a job, dressed just like I am right now. The motel where I was staying had locked up all my clothes for failure to pay them, and they wouldn't give them to me. I had no place to stay. I had no money in my pocket. And of all things, I went to Red Cross, and they gave me enough money to ride the bus to the mission down on 5th and Main. And not Clancy's Midnight Mission, the other mission, the preacher mission. Um, and that's where it started. And uh, within a few days, I found out you can survive down there and you can live there. And it was like when I was in the psychiatric hospital. Once you get in there and you, you adjust to it, you know, you, you just get in a routine. And I seem to adjust in any lifestyle. And I did on the street. I did get off there about a year later because the GI Bill come out and someone told me about it. And I wound up down at the county and they got me in front of a veterans officer and I got the GI Bill. And the next thing I know, I'm in college, 32 years old. I'm in college. Uh, I had struck up a relationship with a lady who had three kids. It was on welfare. And with my VA check, we did good. We were making it. You know what I mean? We were we were a highly motivated middle of the road American family, you know, going up. And I, of course, I would, you know, I had worked as an engineer, but it was obvious to me that I kept getting fired as an engineer. I needed a profession that would allow me some leeway in that. And it dawned on me, all the great American writers were drunks, the really good ones, the ones that, that you know, that uh, we absolutely adore today. And, um, so I thought, there it is. It's made order. I'll be a journalist. I'll be a writer. And I can continue to drink, and that's probably where the best ideas will come from. So that's what I did. I majored in journalism. I had 36 months, which is more than sufficient for most people that go to school on GI Bill to complete and get an undergraduate degree. Some of them actually even get a little bit, a few hours toward their, toward their uh, master's. But... Uh, uh, I managed to do all 36 months at a community college, and I never even got an A degree. But boy, I had a good time. Wow, did I have a good time. But I got out of there, and I did get my first job uh, at a place that uh, was the uh, Orange Coast Daily Pilot, and it was like a farm system paper for the New York Times. And they had several of those, and you started out there, and if you did well... Um, uh, as a rookie, at some point in time, if you were good enough, you would work your way up to the big paper. Now, I had written for them while I was still in school, and then a lot of my stuff got printed, and they liked me. And I think my age may have helped a little bit, because it was a little easier for them to go out and drink with me, and it was the younger, you know, the uh, the young rookies there. But it didn't take me uh, long to find out that there was no more uh, place for drunken journalists, uh, you know, uh, employed than there had been drunken engineers. So it wasn't long that I was not only out of work, I was back on the streets where I'd started some four years earlier. I uh, 
I had one more shot at the big time, if you want to call it that, uh, about two years later. Again, I was actually living on unemployment, but my brother-in-law called me from southeast Colorado in that little old back of county where I grew up. And the farmers had gotten together and had made a decision that they were going to strike because the family farms were in serious condition and uh, they were losing like a 1,000 farms a month. Uh, that were being uh, foreclosed on by banks. And they formulated this idea called the American Agriculture Movement, the farm strike of 1977. They were going on strike. But they had nobody that knew anything about broadcast or newspapers or media. And my brother-in-law, who was one of the strikers, said, look, I have, I have a brother-in-law that went to college for this. He knows all about this stuff. And they said, well, who is it? And when he told them, they said, oh, some of them knew me. But they found out they could get me real cheap, and so they went ahead and did it. And, you know, sometimes you're lucky. It just really happened to be a slow day in the newsroom across the country. Jimmy Carter was president, uh, and all of a sudden this became very novel. I did suggest is that we put signs on our tractors and park them along the highway in this little community along Highway 287 and put farm strikes. Farmers were going on strike in 1977. This attracted, believe it or not, First television come out from Pueblo and then Denver and Colorado Springs. And the first thing you know, we're on ABC, NBC, and CBS because it just seemed different. Farmers don't go on strike. They don't have unions. But here it was, and it just made good copy. Well, you know, come December the 13th, which was the strike date, we had over 400,000 registered farmers in the American agriculture movement. And by that time, believe it or not, I was in a chartered plane. I was flying all over the United States meeting with farm governors and senators. We had major rallies, thousands of tractors all over this country. They shut down towns and airports. And for those of you that might remember, and it was, believe me, it was there was at least 40 states where it was extremely active. And in January of, of 1978, we took some 22,000 tractors that we were going to take into Washington, D.C. They stopped them in Virginia and did allow 2,200 to go in, and that was enough to create entire crazy mayhem. But um, uh, I was getting uh, uh, a lot of attention that I really didn't need. I was uh, I was going to I was on the Good Morning America show, Today Show, and I don't know many how many local shows and and radio broadcasts and all that. It was just kind of a blur because most of the time I was drunk. But in Washington D.C. at that rally, um, uh, we had uh, uh, our great senator from Kansas. Uh, that was speaking and dole and unfortunately I was standing kind of to the left of him but not very well on the balustrade and I kind of staggered and fell off and on NBC that night you could see me going over and the legs in the air and um, the next morning they had me the farmers had me on a plane back to Amarillo, Texas and my run was over and was over more ways than one because while they were giving me $200 a week pocket money plus picking up my expenses I was writing checks for about 2000 a week and um, I all got caught up so I did what I always did I got real brave and ran to California hit out up there and about a week later they found me in a motel in San Diego put me in jail in uh, Santa Ana Orange County Jail and it was uh, April the 5th of 1978, and I can tell you there's not very many dates I remember, but April the 5th is my birthday. And there I sat in the drunk tank on my 38th birthday. I said, what happened? What happened? 
I started looking back at, at some of the opportunities that I had gotten. And, and here I am facing felony charge, um, you know, $150,000 bail, and uh, my life's over, 38 years old. I don't know. I made a partial commitment that night. I, you know, I knew that I was going to prison. I knew that. But I also said, well, you know, one thing I know, I've been around AA long enough to that they go to jails and they go to prisons, and I'm going to do AA because I don't know if I still stand a chance, but it's the only chance I got. Well, I spent about four months. I spent two months in uh, jail there in Orange County, and uh, then they sent me uh, back to Colorado to uh, to face the charges, which had been growing while I was in there. Um, i got to give you this one sideline because there are some moments in my, as uh, the, the consequences of some of my drinking, first of all, I was a blackout drinker. So most of the things that happened when I were drinking, I, I, I can only tell you that I got it third party. I, I didn't have a, an idea most of the time what had happened, and so people always told me, and sometimes in not a very pleasant way. But uh, they had picked me up at Orange County, um, left there about 4 o'clock in the morning. We were going to go by the L.A. County Jail, and they were picking up three more guys, and we were all going to be transported in a private plane back to Colorado um, by the state police there. And we got to the Burbank Airport, and we're all in legs and uh, in chains. And now I've been up since 4 o'clock in the morning, and I tell this one deputy, I said, you know, I've got to go to the bathroom. And he said, uh, I don't want to, you know, rock your boat, but, you know, there's four of you here and you're chained together. It's not like I can cut you loose and you go to the bathroom. He said, they got to go with you. I said, hey, guys, come on, let's go. i got to go there. And they said, nah, we went before we got here. I said, excuse me? And they said, what's your problem? You didn't hear me? And, uh, you know, I did everything I could for as long as I could, but nature's going to take its way with you before, you know, it just is. And sure enough, you know, but the thing I remember the most was this woman walking by and she had this little boy and a little girl and the little boy looking. He said, Mama, Mama, look at that man. He's wet in his pants. And I never forgot that standing in a Burbank airport, sober. And uh, the humiliation from that, I, I wish I could say that would be enough. But I really actually I, I got a break when I got back to that prison. I think my my family had a lot to do with that. They made restitution on the checks. They gave me a, um, a conditional probation is that uh, if I fulfilled all the obligations of that probation and uh, in two years that the charges would be dismissed against me, which was a big deal, trust me. And uh, But they put a condition there, no drugs or alcohol. But again, remember, I'm in jail, and I'll sign anything to get out. And uh, I didn't think that would be a problem because, remember, I made up my mind I was going to go to AA. But I made that because I was going to go to AA jail and prison, you know, and now I'm not going to prison anymore. So, But I still made a, a little bit of attempt. I started going to a meeting in um, Arizona that uh, later become my home group. And I'd actually been in that meeting a few times, and there were some guys in there that I had drank with, and they were sober, and they had been sober for a while. But um, I lasted from July till December, and I started drinking again, and I, for, I really, really this time could not stop. I couldn't stop. I, I, I would just... You know, I would get up of a morning, I'd go to the bar at 6.30, and, and the next thing I know, I'd be the next morning. And, and I'd be so sick and hungover, I'd have to have a drink, and I'd have a drink, and it'd be the next day. 
You know, I, 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 not only a blackout drinker, but I couldn't recall. It was just, there was nothing in there. You know, I had just, I had reached a point of where I was existing. I wasn't, there wasn't anything else there. And I had gotten married at that time because I met a woman who had everything I'd ever wanted in life. She had a car, a job, and a house. And um, it worked for me at that time because the probation officer said if I didn't get those things very quickly, he was going to send me to prison. But he came by uh, in June, and, uh, you know, my sister told him I was drinking and doing all kinds of things I wasn't supposed to do, and he was going to put a cap on me. He came by, had a meeting with me, and he says, if you're not, this was on Tuesday, he said, if you're not in some kind of a rehabilitation center for at least 28 days, um, I'm going to have to pick up and send you back to Colorado and put you in prison. Well, I could only find one place that would take somebody with no money, and it was called a Maverick House in Phoenix. And I went down there, and sure enough, they took me, uh, which I found out later. He knew that was about the only place that let me, and he called him before and said, you know, whether you take him or not, it's up to you, but if you don't, let me know because he's going to prison. So out of the goodness of their heart, they let me in that program, but I didn't know that at the time. But about the third day I was in there, for the first time, I wanted to be sober more than I wanted to drink. We had a guy in there named Ray, and Ray was another one of those guys that had come off Skid Row, had uh, become a counselor there, and uh, he become uh, just a real dear friend. And uh, I, I asked him one night, third or fourth day I was there, I said, Ray, I, w- I really think I want to give this AA thing a chance, but this God, this God thing is, I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. I, I, you know, I don't believe in God. I, I just don't. I haven't believed in Him since I was 13 years old, and I have never had any reason to change my mind. And he said, um, "Okay, you're. Uh, I know a little bit about you. You're kind of a pretty educated guy, aren't you?" You know, he said, "I only went to seventh grade, but you," he said, "now you, you've been, uh, you've been to college, you've been an engineer, you've done all these jobs, and you're, you're a pretty smart guy." I said, "Well." I don't know about that, but yeah, I guess, if you want to put it that way. He said, good. Prove to me there's no God. Well, I had been in a lot of debates with a lot of people over a lot of years, and that's my lead. Prove to me there's a God. But I'd never had that reversed on me and thrown back at me. Prove to me there is a God. Well, it took me for about three or four minutes. I said, well, I can't prove to you there's no God. And he said, if you can't prove to me there's no God, then by default you've opened up the possibility that there is one. Well, even a smart guy can't argue with that. He said, what I would suggest is that maybe you just ask and find out for yourself. And that night, I'm not sure out of curiosity or pain or what motivated me But when the lights went out in that room that night, I rolled over and faced a block wall just like that one, different color. Um, I said, God, please help me. You know, I, I didn't get any sudden anything. But about three days later, we were standing out, uh, in the uh, yard and we were talking about the only thing recovering alcoholics could talk about, and that's running drunks. And there were some funny stories in there, but all of a sudden it occurred to me, Man, I haven't thought about taking a drink in uh, like one, two, oh my God, three days. I haven't had a thought of taking a drink since I said that silly prayer. It scared the hell out of me. It really did. There was two things about that. One, I didn't want to tell anybody because it sounded silly. And I didn't want to tell anybody. Number two is, 
if it's working, I don't want to do anything to screw it up. But I did go to Ray and I said, Ray, I'm, I'm ready to do this thing. I'm, I'm ready to really try this Alcoholics Anonymous. And he laid down a rather simple plan. You go to a meeting the day you get out of here and you go to a meeting every day after that. I said, I know it's 90 meetings in 90 days. He said, that's not what I said. I didn't say 90 days. I said, you go to a meeting every day. You find a sponsor in the first week. You get a home group in the same week. And I did every one of the things he told me to do. I went out. I went back to my old home group, the Estrella group in Litchfield Park. Uh, well, it was in Avondale. And uh, in the third meeting there, I found a guy that I wanted to be my sponsor. I, I knew his dad. Uh, uh, you know, he was a lot older than me, and his dad was really old. But, um, uh, you know, I just knew him to be a nice, quiet guy. And um, I just started going to meetings every day. And, I, you know, the sponsor I had was a guy that um, he didn't do any service work. When I say service work, he wasn't in the intergroup. He didn't do GSR. He didn't do any of that. But I'll tell you, he was probably the number one guy to go on 12-step calls in our own group. This guy was constantly going on 12-step calls. And uh, that wasn't good for me because I had to go on damn near every one of them with him, you know. And uh, I, I mean, we've we've come in here at night to go to the meeting and someone say, I, I got to call him this guy out there. And uh, I did go. I give him my number. He's been drinking. And and Tom would say, well, you got a phone number for him? I said, yeah. He said, give it to me. We'll go out there. And I knew what that meant. Is he get a car key? You know, John didn't care. If those people picked up the phone, whether they were drunk or sober or somewhere in between, that was good enough for him. Now, rarely would he go out there if a, if a wife called in, right, or the neighbor or the landlord. But uh, if that person could find a phone and make a call, he would go. And um, he was he was at, he was incredible with a guy, whether he was drunk or sober, and and how he could sit there and can you know not maybe convince the guy, but to sow the seeds of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I asked him one time, I said, how many of these people ever get sober? He says, I have no idea. I have no idea. But he told me something I didn't realize at the time because I thought he originated. He said, but Keith, we stayed sober tonight. I thought, wow, that's powerful. I use that a couple of times before I, people are starting to chuckle. It's not original. You know, that's what Lois told Bill when he was complaining about nobody ever staying sober. So... But, you know, from that, uh, he did suggest that I get into other service work, especially H&I. And I got into H&I. was there a year, and I finally got a job as taking a prison meeting in the Perryville prison out there every Wednesday night. I did that for 14 months. It was incredible. It was incredible because I was going to see guys where I should have been. That's where I should have been was in prison. Uh, I moved over here in 1983 in Las Vegas. I had four years of sobriety, and uh, I thought that would impress some people. Um, and if that didn't impress them, I was going to make some suggestions to how they could improve some of their meetings. And they were no more impressed with that than they was my four years of sobriety. And I, uh, I called my sponsor one night and I told him, I says, I, I'll tell you what, this is, I don't think I'm going to make it over here. I just don't think I'm going to make it. And he said, how long have you been there? And I said, two months. He said, I told you to get a sponsor over there the first week. And I said, I know. He said, well, I'm telling you this, you get a sponsor. I'm not taking any more of your collect calls. And, uh, you know, so what are you going to do when your sponsor starts, stops taking your collect calls? And I, uh, and I did. The following week, I got a sponsor. And, you know, things begin to change right away because that sponsor says what you need to do, Keith, is do the things you were doing in Phoenix. 
You know, if you want to get in, you want to get into the AA community here and become a part of it, then do something to become a part. And that means get into service. So I went into H&I here. And uh, the first place that I went, I, I was sent over to the detox center, which was Sendak at the time. And the night I walked in there, I met a guy named uh, Danny Murphy, who was who was the chairman of that meeting. And uh, I find myself now going to that same building, only it's a mental health crisis unit that Westcare runs for people that are, well, they have a lot of major problems on Monday night. And... Uh, you know, I, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. And that guy I met up there, Danny Murphy, is one of my dearest friends. And Alcoholics Anonymous that I found out uh, that is in Las Vegas, uh, much to my misunderstanding, is one of the strongest in the United States. And I've had people say, well, they would have to be. I mean, for people to get sober in Las Vegas, it must be really powerful. And the reality is I've traveled to a lot of places. I The first... Fifteen years I was in AA, and I traveled continuously all over the country, and I went to a heck of a lot of AA meetings in Chicago and other places, and they had good meetings. Now, you're always going to be more comfortable in your home group, and the one rule group, you know, this is, of course, it's my opinion, but they, they made that disclaimer before, and it is my opinion, even though it's right, it's the best AA meeting in the United States, and I can't say the rest of the world, because I haven't been in the rest of the world, I have been in France and London and the Bahamas and all that, but it is the best. And if your home group isn't the best, then you're not in the right home group. And if you think leaving it, you may make it the best. I don't know. But I do know I was told before, if you want to make it the best meeting, you stay there and make it the best meeting. So, uh, but I've, uh, my uh, sobriety date is uh, June the 20th, 1979. And uh, there's been some incredibly good times. There's been some rather tough times. At 10 years sober, I probably went through the most difficult period of my 27 years of sobriety. It really was. I mean, enough to take me to the point of being suicidal. And um, I actually sat down and planned it out and wrote my um, letter. You know, I, I didn't want to just disappear. I wanted to... And then I, I on this whole thing, I had... Um, here, here's, here's the reason. You've you got to know, because it's, I had some real reasons. Number one is I had broken up in a long-term relationship, right? I had lost a job that I really liked, and the IRS wanted some more money out of me. Now, if those three things won't drive you to suicide, <laughs> give me a break. I mean, they all hit at once. Uh, I had thought about how I was going to do it. I was going to take my car in the garage. I was living with some people at the time, and they were going to be going on a weekend, so I was going to pull it in on Friday, close the door, put the rags around it, and start the car up with a full tank of gas, and that's how I was going to do it. Now, I had a car phone in that car, and it was a Lincoln. Now, this is terrible. This is for a guy off Skid Row, right? He's going to drive his Lincoln into this garage, get on the car phone. I'm going to call my recorder phone in the house, and I'm going to leave this my final message. And I assumed, of course, that they would find that tape, listen to it, and they would play it at groups like this and say, this is what happens, you know. And so I would go out as an example, if nothing else. Um, but I had two things that changed that. The day I was going to do the plan, I got a call in the afternoon from a guy I was sponsoring, and he was crying and boohooing, and, he's, and his wife was leaving him, and he couldn't help it. It was too painful. He was going to get drunk. Now, he could have said a lot of things, and I would have hung up on him, but, you know, you can't do that. The last thing I wanted 
is for me to commit suicide and then have this guy go to meetings and tell him, well, I tried to talk to him and I told him he was going to drink and he went ahead and committed suicide. I didn't want that on me. So I told him I'd meet him at the park and we went down there. I said, I've only got an hour. I'll give you an hour. And we got there at four. The hour was going to be up at five and about seven thirty. You know, we finally got this thing and he was going to go to a meeting at the TIA club and he wasn't, he wasn't going to drink that night. Well, it was too late now to commit suicide. But I still had the problem the next day and I was at a 7 a.m. meeting at the TIA club and there was a gentleman there and, uh, after the meeting, uh, he said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going home. He said, well, I knew you weren't going to a job. You don't have one. He said, sit down and talk to me. And, uh, I had no reason not to except that I didn't want to. But, uh, you know, I'm the nice guy. And he looked like he could use, you know, someone to talk to. So I sit down. And uh, he said, tell me what's going on. And I don't know why. I started telling him what was going on that I'd never told my sponsor. I'd never told anybody else. And uh, he said, wow, it sounds like you might need to work the steps. I don't think he heard what I told him. I mean, I'm 10 years sober. What I need right now is for someone telling me what I need to do is to work the steps. But he made a suggestion is that if I'd meet him for lunch, which he was going to pay for, uh, he would be glad to help me with that. Well, I'll do a lot for a free meal, even 10 years sober. Well, I met him, and we started a process, and we, we went through a lot of it right there and even got into an amends list, and I owed some money, and I owed some money in a way that I didn't think I could pay back. And uh, he made me write letters to those people, and some of them I owed more than $1,000. And he said, tell them you're going to send them $5 a month. That's humiliating. I'm 10 years sober. I've I've had really good jobs. I'm going to write someone and tell them that uh, I'm going to, one of them was a major in the Air Force. I'm going to send you $5 a month. He said, yeah. Well, I did it. I mean, sometimes in this program, you'll do whatever it takes, even when you're as ego-driven as I was, and I mailed those letters. And every response came back, I need to tell you right now, was positive. It was absolutely, I, I just couldn't believe it. You know, and, and that guy's in this room tonight. But we all know there's something about anonymity. And one thing is they always tell you if you do something good for someone, you, it doesn't count if you tell somebody about it. So I'm not going to break uh, John Todman's anonymity because, you know, I... Oh, hell. John, I'm sorry, man. Well, now you have to go out and help somebody else. You have to save another life. Sorry about that. That's how it works. You know, my mother told me when I was a young boy, she said when I was born, and uh, a few days after I was born, the neighbor lady come over and wanted to see the new baby, and, and I was in my crib, and she said, my goodness, my goodness, Bernice, what a beautiful boy. You know what? He's going to be president of the United States. And my mother would tell me that story. And she just loved it. And I don't know why, but I I took that to mean that for her, she wouldn't expect anything less than for me to be president of the United States. That certainly didn't make me an alcoholic. Now, my father was an alcoholic, and genetically he might have helped. But I I always felt like I was an underachiever. I know today it was the alcoholism. It wasn't my mother. But... um when I was one year sober, I took my one-year chip, and I sat down with my mother. My father had already passed away, and I said, Mom, I want you to have this chip. And I said, you know, I also want to tell you, I'm sorry I didn't make it as President of the United States. 
She said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you remember as a little boy, you used to tell me I'd be president of the United States? And she said, yeah, but the reason I told you that, I just wanted you to know you could be anything you wanted to be, even president of the United States, if that's what you wanted. She said, Keith, all I ever wanted for you, ever wanted for you, is just to be happy. She said, every night I prayed for you. I prayed for two things. One, that you would be safe, and the other is that you'd be happy. And she says, you know, this little, this little half dollar thing you gave me. I've watched you this past year and you've come to my house and you've spent two or three hours with me and you've talked to me. And you're safe today and you're happy today. And she said, you've achieved everything that I ever wanted for you. And if those folks in AA are responsible for that, God bless them. I want them to know I loved them. One year later, she passed away with Alzheimer's. And that was probably the last coherent conversation I read with my mother. But I want you to know something. For that one moment in time, I owe alcoholics a, something I could never repay. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.